Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Well, Mark, let me just say congratulations. I mean, that's got to be, I mean, you know, I, you know, I heard you guys, you know, your, your company was acquired. Uh, obviously, that's uh, it's a huge uh, life-altering event for you, I'm sure. And I think that's uh, it's just, I'm sure it represents uh, decades of work finally kind of paying off, so to speak. But that's, that's true. Yeah, it's a 40-year cool. overnight success story. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> how they all are. That's what you hear. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, I don't, I think anybody that's actually listening to this show already knows who you are, Mark. I, I don't think anybody, anybody in our audience doesn't know. And, and Zach might be able to add something in later if we need to. So let's, let's get, you know, I've just got some questions that I think are, that are, that are, that are interesting to me. And I'm going to, I always do this with a guest. I kind of get greedy and sometimes Zach gets <laughs> gifted on some of this stuff, but, uh, right. So, Mark, you know, the, the, it's kind of interesting, you know, we t- there's a lot of like interest in longevity, you know, I think there's, uh, you know, people are at this point really thinking that, that the, the, the sort of uh, uh, proposition for super longevity actually maybe exists now, maybe we're gonna have people that are gonna live to 150 or 180. And you know, there's all these people that are out there like uh, guys like Aubrey de Grey and uh, Walter Longo with this fasting mimicking diet and uh, guys like uh, Dave Asprey, who thinks that he's going to live to 180 due to his routine and stuff like that. And, and, you know, despite all this, I've not seen anybody that's really done it yet. And so I always, I always, my thing is I like to see results. And I think results talk louder than any kind of theoretical stuff. Um, and so until we have that, I mean, it, it seems like health span is, is the best we can, we can hope for right now. And when I look at what does health span look like and what is, what, what do I want to see? And then I look at people that, you know, that have more years than me and you, you know, you have a few more years than me, Mark, and you're, you're doing what I've considered to be health span. And I think this is as, as good as we can do uh, from a human standpoint at this point until something proves me wrong. I mean, as of this point, the longest living human being is still, uh, what was her name, Jean Calamay, 122 out of France. And, you know, if you look at all these super centenarians, the only uh, consistent finding we have is there's no consistency. You know, maybe right. they got lucky on genetics. Some of them smoked, some of them drank, some of them ate bacon, some of them ate eggs, some of them ate cookies. And so, you know, I, when I look at all this stuff out there, that's like, you know, now we've got these people that are doing, you know, transfusions of blood from young people and vitamin infusions and all this stuff out there. I just got to kind of look at it and say, is this just a waste of time or what? So when we go back to health span, and, and, and I'd like you, if you don't mind, can you, can you give me your definition of what you think health is? And then what do you think are the common things that people do to, to lead to what I would consider aging in a healthy fashion? Yeah, so already it's a loaded question because already we're talking about nuances. We're talking about, um, you know, perceptions of what health is uh, because I have uh, a number of friends who would say that health is well-being and well-being comes from more from your thoughts than anything else. In other words, you can be the leanest, most ripped, 
mofo on the planet. And if you're miserable and if you're, you know, caught up in your thoughts, then you're not healthy and, uh, and you've missed out on, on the point of life. Um, you know, I have always said, uh, I look for the greatest amount, the greatest opportunity for enjoyment, fulfillment, contentment, pleasure uh, from every possible moment. Uh, that's why the tagline for my company is live awesome. So we're, we're seeking to live awesome. Um, part of that, I suspect, is being healthy in a physical sense. That is being the, the absence of disease. Uh, drilling down further, it's the absence of pain. Uh, it's the absence of stiffness. Stiffness. It's the, it's the um, uh, retention of mobility. Uh, it's the retention of access to memory. Uh, there are a lot of metrics by which we can measure health and or slash wellness. Uh, and so, you know, we, we, we kind of come to a, a, a bit of a crossroads here where we just, I, I think it, it, we define it differently from one person to the next. So, you know, a lot of people that we hang out with would define it as, um, you know, sort of low body fat, um, high muscle mass, low sarcopenia, uh, you know, good mobility. Others would just say, look, if I'm not sick, and I'm happy. I don't care that I'm 20 pounds overweight. I don't care that I, you know, I can't play uh, sports anymore. I'm enjoying my life. I'm enjoying my grandchildren. You know, why should I think that my life is worse than than my fitter, uh, you know, uh, peer down the street? So I'm I'm rambling here, but I think I'm trying to sort of create a a, a scenario that 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 wellness and and fitness and health. Um, you know, we sort of each have to set our own standards for it. And so mine, you know, I, I, I had a t-shirt years ago that said, live long, drop dead, right? And it was really about how could I, again, maintain good health, good mobility, uh, agility, muscle mass, um, organ reserve. We can talk about what that means uh, over the years. Uh, and then one day when, when I least expect it, keel over from something you know, when I'm well into my 90s or, or 100s. Do I believe that we can extend uh, the lifespan of humans as we know them now into, you know, to 150 years, 180 years? I think the answer is probably no. I think that there's probably a finite uh, amount of years that those of us who've been born in the last 40 or 50 years have, and any amount of manipulation uh, of that is going to be so artificial as to, you know, kind of uh, almost fly in the face of what the definition of longevity is. I mean, sure, if, if we get to the point where we upload our consciousness into a machine and we can live indefinitely, you know, is that, isn't that cheating? You know, isn't that, I mean, if we're, if we're talking about this corporal, you know, vessel that we occupy right now, I think there's a, there's a limit. I really do. And, and, and by the way, I am okay with that. You know, I'm okay with the concept of there being a finite amount of, of life. I don't, I think that's what defines, you know, that's what gives meaning to what we do every day when we wake up. So anyway, I'll stop there and, and open it for, open it for questions and discussion. Yeah, no, I want to, I want to add to that because I think it's a, it's a, a cool question and a, a fun area to dive into. And I, I think, you know, my first exposure kind of to looking at nutrition and like athletic performance and then just, you know, health and well-being um, you know, came after I got done with college. And, and one thing I identified fairly early that I found interesting to look at, and I continue to kind of look at 
individuals like this are, you know, guys like yourself, Mark, who have like essentially defied age by most metrics in terms of like what you're able to continue to do with your body. You know, Sean definitely falls into that same category, you know, um, I mean, neither of you guys are ancient. I'm not trying to call you old men, but, <laughs> but I mean, like there, you don't see a lot of 50 plus year old men, you know, slam dunking basketballs, you know, out on paddle boards every day and stuff like that. Um, so for me, it's always been like, well, who are the people that are fitting that category? Who are the people that are still getting done very physical things that, you know, to be honest, most guys my age can't do anymore. So, and I'm 32. So like, how do I experience the things I enjoy now for another 30, 40 years versus, you know, get all of it out of 10, 15 years, and then kind of like settle to a, a life of, uh, I guess, immobile, <laughs> immobility, or just trying to find a new interest that doesn't require me to, to use my body as much. And, um, you know, maybe that'll change my mentality with that as I get older. But right now, I want to keep it going as long as I can. So looking to kind of the examples that are out there now. Um, another one is one of our guests we had on earlier, Jeff Browning, who's turning 48 and he's still placing at a world-class level in hundred mile ultra endurance events. And it's like, these are the people that are interesting to me. So um, listening to kind of how you guys all kind of tie in a lot of the different lifestyle aspects versus just say, Oh, this is the food group you have to eat in order to be active when you're 60. It's more like, well, here's some, here's a, a good direction to go nutrition, but here's what you need to do from a psychological standpoint, social relation standpoint, sleep side of things. Um, you know, all these like kind of pillars to health that we see like people who are happy for long periods of time versus just, uh, you know, existing, I guess, more or less. No, it's, it, it's a good point. And that's why from day one, the primal blueprint was always about a lifestyle, a, a comprehensive lifestyle that embodied not just diet, but methods of exercise that were contemplated to optimize gene expression, if you will. Uh, sleep patterns, sun exposure, play, using your brain, avoiding uh, toxic relationships, all those things have always played into the primal blueprint. And, and, and they are all pillars, elements of a healthy life or the, this concept of well-being. Um, but I want to go back and sort of point out, Zach, that, you know, your peers, certainly my peers in the 70s, sort of, which was the golden age of running, right? I mean, I, I, you and I could talk offline about a race I did in, in Oregon in uh, 1979. There were 650 people showed up at that marathon in Eugene. Uh, I ran 221.38, right? What place did I get? I'll tell you, 48th. <laughs> and I was only... I was, there were only three foreigners in front of me. That was the golden age of running. Everyone was running 100 miles a week. In fact, when, when I heard that Frank Shorter, excuse me, when Bill Rogers was, was running 138 miles a week, I felt like some, you know, slacker, some ne'er-do-well trying to be a runner that I couldn't put those miles in. Of course, when I tried to put those miles in, it just about killed me. Uh, but that was, that was sort of the metric that we all used in those days. Now, none of those guys are running now. Most of those guys can't even walk. You know, Frank Shorter is basically decrepit. Um, you know, Scott Tinley got their hip replaced, you know, a bunch of years ago. A lot of these guys have had such uh, problems with their, uh, with, their, um, with their joints, but even more so with their hearts, right? And I think you see this whole uh, AFib and I have, I have premature ventricular contraction. I have PVCs that basically 
prevent me from tr from training at a high level and competing at a high level. Thank you very much. And I, that's like, I'm glad that that's the case because I, I attribute part of my longevity to the fact that I stopped doing this stuff in my 30s. And I shifted away from more is better to looking for quality opportunities to find ways to move that had the, the most benefit for the least amount of pain, suffering, and sacrifice. Uh, so I went literally from being an endurance athlete to being, for lack of a better term, more of a strength and speed athlete. Uh, and in the process, retained my aerobic capacity, but also developed more muscle mass, developed more agility. Um, literally, I feel, even though I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm just a legend in my own mind, um, <laughs> I, I feel like I can sprint faster today than when I was a national class marathoner in my 30s. Uh, and all of this comes back to um, identifying you know, a, to a total lifestyle that you want to uh, arrive at, one that's, that's, that encompasses or uh, that embodies uh, a way of eating that's, that's uh, non-inflammatory, that's, that's not highly inflammatory like most people's are, uh, that's just the right amount of calories, not too many calories, not too few calories, that's, you know, that gets the right amount of sleep, that, that puts all these things together so that you can optimize the genetics that you were born with, because not everybody was born with the same capacity to do all this stuff, right? And, and so my, my sort of my mission has always been to discover these hidden genetic switches that we all have, and then give information to people to say, hey, you might try experimenting this way or that way, or adjusting this in your diet, or adjusting this in how you work out. That's sort of been my philosophy. Hey, Mark, do you think that uh, elite level athletic performance is incompatible with being healthy. And, and I like I said, if you were to go back yeah. earlier and, and go run your career again, how would you do it differently if you still wanted to be, you know, an elite level distance runner? Um, well, I certainly do it differently. Um, but I would not expect that it would be, um, that it would be in inferring upon me some added longevity, that it would be giving me any sort of leg up on the rest of, on the rest of the world. I think elite level athletics is uh, counterproductive uh, to longevity and health. And I think you see this pretty much across the board in, in, in all sports. There are very few sports where you'll see, uh, you know, people who have had a, a 20 or 30 year career uh, at the highest level and then go on to be 90 or hundred years old. Um, you know, the, that's not to say that, you know, people shouldn't pursue this. Uh, there's, but I'll, you know, I was the, I was the anti-doping commissioner for the sport of triathlon for 15 years. I was basically responsible for, I, I basically wrote the drug, the anti, the anti-doping rules for triathlon back in the late eighties and early nineties before there was a USADA, before there was a, a world anti-doping agency. And I had to administer and oversee, you know, every, every drug test. And, and uh, it used to blow my mind that, that the way the, the anti-doping movement was crafted was to, um, was to take hundreds of thousands of aspiring young athletes and put them through the meat grinder in the hopes that one or two of them might win a gold medal one day, or one or two of them might get a $10 million a year uh, football or baseball contract, and the rest would all fa fall by the wayside. And in the process of grinding out this this elite level training regimen that was basically contemplated to weed out the, you know, 
to, put, to cast everyone aside except those few genetically gifted ones that could make it to the top, and then deny them all the medicines that you would give any poor bastard who walked into an emergency room on a Monday morning after a hard weekend, you know, and, and, and allow them to recover. I always found that sort of uh, uh, hypocritical to be, to be completely um, preventing elite athletes uh, and, and not giving them access to some of these uh, medicines that would just put them over the, you know, get, get them over the hump or help their recovery a little bit. Um, anyway, long-winded answer of saying, yeah, I think elite level athletics is, is, uh, is antithetical to health. Now, you know, as we say, everything in moderation, some amount of activity is not only um, good for you, it's great for you. And, and we all know that, but uh, you know, there, it's a bell curve and there's a point at which you, you overdo uh, one to sacrifice the other. You overdo the exercise to sacrifice the health and longevity. Yeah, no, I think you're, you're right on. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I usually try to be very open about this when I'm talking to folks about, you know, my own specific training and protocol and stuff. And it's like, um, to, there's a margin of diminishing returns, especially I think with like extreme endurance or, ex well, extreme anything really. Cause <laughs> like you said, if you're doing extreme, you probably find yourself on the far right side of that bell curve. And then you are fighting an uphill battle for health. And, you know, that's one of the, one of the more interesting, I think, kind of almost funny questions I'll get is they'll say like, they'll see how much running I do, or they'll look at a race and they'll imagine I do that every day or something like that. And they'll be like, wow, you must be able to eat whatever you want. And, you know, I, I, I smile about it and think to myself, it's like, well, from a pure energy standpoint, yeah, I could probably, you know, I'm fighting a battle of getting in enough versus, you know, trying to minimize what I'm eating in terms of quantity. But the more active and the more stress I put on my body, typically tends to be the times of year where I'm more strict about what I'm actually having uh, because I realize that, you know, the recovery side of that is very tough to nail. Um, and it's, you know, like I said, fighting an uphill battle to kind of make that happen um, and compete. So uh, you got to be, you, you almost have to be more conscious about that. Or I think, you know, you get past that stage of your twenties and early thirties where you can get away with a lot of stuff and you find yourself either, you know, done or in a bad spot. Yeah. I mean, it's, you bring up an interesting point there what, what people, people's perception of what you do, if they don't know what you do, or if they have not had not ex any experience, part of their, their mentality, their psyche is, Oh, he's so lucky. He can eat whatever he wants and get away with it. It's like, seriously, man, like, like, is that how people think that, I wish I could exercise more so I could eat more shit, right? It's just, it's a bizarre, it's a bizarre way to look at life. And yet so many people live their lives. I know so many people in the gym. I talked about this a lot who, you know, they're on the treadmill doing 450, 520 calories on that beautiful little red LED printout. And then they feel like they can go home and have a couple more bites of something they shouldn't have had in the first place. Hmm. Uh, and you know why you would want to put yourself through all that misery just to have a couple of minutes of gustatory hedonistic pleasure eating crap. Uh, it's, it's, it's a weird sort of commentary on the human psyche that would, that would have people do that. Why don't you just learn how to eat uh, an appropriate amount of food from uh, a selection of foods that are known to be better for you than this other, this other uh, category of foods that you know you should not be eating. It's pretty simple. Yeah. And I think, I actually think the funny 
thing about all that too is uh, I think a lot of it just comes with information. And, you know, when you, you kind of alluded to it, it's like, rather than looking at what you can't have, if you identify stuff that you know works well for you and focus on what you can have and appreciate that, it becomes almost as addicting to kind of turn to those, especially if you're feeling better. <laughs> and yeah. I think it's, we talk about this on other episodes too. It's like, and a lot of people are walking around just not really knowing, I think, what it feels like to be like fine-tuned. Um, so they've almost normalized a subpar like way of life or feeling. So, you know, they have, they're disassociated away from what they could feel like if they kind of dialed in a healthy nutritional approach. Yeah. And, and the converse of that is when you do dial in a healthy nutritional approach and you do clean up your act and you do refine your way of eating and then you go off and you go back to the way you were before, it's freaking miserable, right? It's like, it's now you get that. Holy crap. I was doing that to my body every single day. I just didn't feel it because you know, the body has this tendency to want to avoid pain. And so if you go down that path of eating highly inflammatory foods all the time, the body will respond by, you know, dulling pain receptors and you'll still be in pain, but it won't be as bad as, you know, as, as it could have been because the body's trying to adjust and adapt to that level of, of toxic input. You know, one thing Zach put up, you know, just brought up and it kind of gets to the fact that we've kind of normalized illness. I mean, you know, what is now common is, is, is average, but it's not normal. And I, you know, it's kind of interesting. I I've been on social media for a couple of years now and recently, I just tweeted this thing. Some guy sent, sent me a uh, thing he got from Facebook, and it said that, uh, we're sorry your ad has been rejected because you show uh, an image of someone with a desirable body type, <laughs> and this is not acceptable. I mean, this yeah. is literally, and I, and I, I just kind of retweeted, I said, this is insanity that we're, yeah. we're, 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 shame, you know, we're saying somebody who is, is in shape and is lean is now considered offensive. And we need to protect people from seeing those images. And that's what we're kind of getting at. And so I just, you know, it kind of is a little scary. No, you're right. We're going we're to accept this stuff. No, that, that whole political correctness of, you know, making uh, mor morbid obesity uh, not just okay, but embracing it as, you know, uh, that's who you are. And, you know, you're, you're, you know, everything is okay. And don't blame yourself. And, uh, you know, don't allow anybody to, to, to shame you. I mean, we, you know, clearly I don't want to, I don't want to shame anybody, but I also would like to uh, allow people, you know, to take responsibility for the condition they're in, uh, not blame, but responsibility for it mm -hmm. to be able to, um, if they, if they want to dig themselves out of that hole, to be able to trend toward a more ideal body composition, not necessarily the cover of shape magazine, uh, you know, or eight pack abs or whatever, but, but certainly uh, to be able to feel like, you know, there's, there's information out there. And if I tap into this information and I'm, you know, willing to do the work and forego the hedonistic other side of, of my diet, then I will get results. I mean, that's, I, 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 I agree. I feel like we're getting so far down this other path of political correctness that it's, that it's, um, you know, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to generate an even sicker society over time. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like a classic example of overcorrection, in my opinion. Like, you know, we're trying to alleviate some of the, the burden, I guess, if someone does find themselves in 
in a situation where their health isn't, isn't very good. And, you know, they notice that they're, they're out of shape or something like that. It's like, obviously, like you said, the, the move isn't to shame them or make them feel bad about themselves. And that's probably where the original intentions were with a lot of that stuff. And it's just kind of overcorrect to the point now where I feel like to a degree, we're removing the hope of that person ever, you know, taking the initiative, like you said, and addressing some health uh, concerns or health issues and trying to, you know, keep that hope that they can, they can, you know, not necessarily, like you said, be the cover of shape magazine, have eight pack app, but, um, bring the, bring a reasonable amount of health back through their own actions. Right. Hey, Mark, let me get your, I mean, we, you, 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 you know, you kind of, uh, vaguely reference bad foods and stuff like that. What do you consider bad foods? I mean, it's debatable. I mean, there's people out there that will argue that it doesn't really matter what you eat as long as you eat enough protein and, and your calories are, are counted for. And there's no, there's no real difference. You know, I had a, I had an online debate with a guy named Lane Norton on, on Mark Bell's podcast uh, recently. We, we, we went over that and, you know, I can see the calories of course do matter. I think they, we do have to account for calories. But I, you know, I believe there are some foods that we eat that we shouldn't be eating. Do you do you share that view, or do you, or are there what foods would you identify as as quote unquote bad foods? Yeah, well, so here we're going to get into that whole political correctness thing because I don't want to shame any foods. Uh, but um, you know, I think all food exists on a spectrum, and a lot of the foods that we consume uh, at the what at one end of the spectrum are very healthy, very desirable zero problems. Uh, you know, if, if you, if you made your diet 70, 80, 90% of those foods, and it's a pretty long list, then you would be in great shape. At the other end of the spectrum, there's some foods that clearly manifest uh, genetic expression in certain people in a way that is not desirable. If those people, you know, uh, raise their hand and say, I would like to be healthy. You know, if you say, raise your hand and you'd like to be healthy and you're eating a lot of sugar and a lot of industrial seed oils, uh, then I suspect that you are, um, you know, that you're thwarting your own efforts to achieve that health. Uh, so we, when we talk about, um, you know, some of these foods, like I say, I, I think the industrial seed oils are the worst offenders. So I think canola oil, soybean oil, corn oil, uh, these are far more insidious than we ever thought. And, and so I spent the last 15 years talking about sugar and excess sugar and, and simple carbs and how detrimental they are to health and how highly inflammatory they are. And I think in the last two years, I've shifted my, um, my, my point of emphasis, not so much away from them, but more towards the industrial seed oil. So if you were to get rid of the sugars, the excess added sugars, the simple carbohydrates in your diet, and, um, and for many people and most people, grains, Let's just put that out there. I've been anti-grain for a long time and got rid of the industrial seed oils. Then there's a lot of things you could eat that people are eating, you know, today, whether it's, uh, you know, I have no problem with starchy tubers. I really have no problem with uh, legumes. You know, the whole paleo movement was sort of a anti-legume movement because uh, Cordain early on discovered lectins and, and made a big deal about how problematic certain types of lectins were for certain people. Um, over the years, I've, when I first, I first embraced that, but as I pulled back from that and I've said, you know, there are a lot of people who probably would benefit from the um, soluble fiber that are in uh, certain types of beans, uh, you know, and, and I've always looked to include the most amount of food possible in one's diet. Uh, so I'm, I was the original guy who said, look, I don't care what they say about 
paleo, I think some amount of dairy might be appropriate in a, in a well-balanced eating strategy. A um, little bit of alcohol, probably not that bad. Um, you know, according, and the whole paleo community was originally very anti-saturated fat from day one. I said, look, I'm not that, I'm not that afraid of saturated fat. I think in, in moderation, in the context of a, of a otherwise healthy eating strategy, some amount of saturated fat is fine, particularly if you have saturated fat and no sugar or little sugar or little carbohydrate or whatever. So I feel like, uh, you know, there, there are some foods, you know, good or bad, right or wrong, black or white. I don't, I don't use those terms much anymore. I just sort of, sort of use terms like some of these foods are probably, you know, uh, antithetical to your, to your goals of achieving better health. And you probably are better off staying away from them. And other foods are probably, you know, uh, going to, going to assist you in your, in your plans. And look, the carnivore diet is, uh, you know, that's, it's a, it's a certainly an elimination diet that works for a lot of people. And I see a lot of, a lot of testimonials, you know, on your site, Sean, and I see it and it's, it's incredible. Um, I'm a person who likes to include as much food as possible, partly because this thing with my, with my wanting to experience the greatest amount of enjoyment in, in, in pleasure in life includes, I like the crunch of certain vegetables, you know, and I like the, I like the, a, a wider variety or taste profile, if you will. Um, you know, could I go uh, long periods of time just eating, um, you know, omelets and steaks and lamb chops? Hell yeah. Um, you know, those are still my favorite foods. Um, I just, you know, I feel like I'm in a space right now where I don't need to be restrictive. I've got, I'm at a body fat level I want to be at. I'm at a, a low level of inflammation. Uh, you know, all cylinders are firing. I'm out playing ultimate frisbee for two hours in the, in the 85 degree Miami heat with 20 somethings. And I can keep up with some of them. Um, you know, I'm, I'm living life to its fullest. And that includes, uh, you know, a, a variety of foods that, um, that I think, uh, gives me the greatest experience of, of this life. Right. And yeah, I think that's, and, and that's a good point, Mark. And I, and I think people misconstrue what I try to say about this diet. I, you know, I think ultimately what I tell people is you have to be objective about what works for you. And it, it, it is a very effective elimination diet. It's a very high quality diet. I mean, there's no doubt. I don't think anybody that, that really understands this, understands that animal nutrition, animal based products are very nutritious and they're very, very well tolerated. And then I tell people, you know, do it for a few months, particularly if you have health issues, and then come back to it and then start adding stuff back in as tolerated. And some people do that. And in my suspicion, going forward long term, there will be a small percentage of people that will continue to be very strict with the diet. Many people will do it, you know, you know as tools, you know, from time to time, they'll do it. Uh, the, the term carnivore adjacent, some people use, where they eat mostly that way, and then they'll add in the berries, and they'll add in the, the, the other things they miss or they like. And I think that's completely acceptable and completely perfectly fine you know there are a small percentage of people that have these really weird diseases you know these autoimmune diseases all these idiopathic diseases we have no idea what the cause is or, or you know maybe the cause is something in the diet and we just we just haven't been smart enough to figure it out or, or willing to go that route but uh no i think that's a that's a perfect perfectly acceptable strategy and, and i agree with you and you know for me I don't really like vegetables. So I just, I, it's like, I, I could care less. You know, I'd rather have a piece of chocolate cake, quite honestly. So if yeah, I were to yeah. have, you know, if I were to talk about my personal enjoyment, yeah, I'd have a piece of cake once in a while. Maybe I felt like crap for a couple hours afterwards sometimes. But 
that's where I would do. But right now, I mean, for me, same way, I'm happy with my performance, the way I feel. I enjoy the hell out of eating ribeye steaks and eggs and salmon and, and that stuff. And, you know, and, and going forward, people ask me how long I'm going to do it. And I, and I say, I don't know until I feel like not doing it. And it may be that I'm adding raspberries here and there and some avocado here and there or something like that. But that's, that's how I think we should approach it. But you have to be very objective about how the food makes you, you know, what it does for you. And I think this is one way you get really in tune with what food is doing for you. The other problem is a lot of people become hypochondriacs. You know, we see this at yeah. every sneeze or cough or, you know, scratch or rash, they all of a sudden attribute to their diet and they, they, they go crazy about that. And we see these people that, you know, this biohacking movement has gotten people where they're just so meticulous about measuring everything and trying to, trying to conflate importance to things that are, we have no idea if they're even important or not. And I think the idea of just, you know, how do I feel? How happy am I? Am I having fun? Am I playing? Is life enjoyable? Is such a powerful message. And I really appreciate you, you sort of uh, bringing that up. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's absolutely my take on biohacking is like when I have to look at a watch or a wearable to determine whether I'm happy or not, then just <laughs> fucking shoot me, man. I mean, it's like, uh, I think the information on a lot of these wearables is useless. It's probably, again, it's, I think it's data that is, that is, in fact, sometimes not only just useless, but harmful. Um, you know, one of the original, uh, I won't name the company, but one of the original sleep trackers told me I was getting zero deep sleep, you know, three nights in a row and I should be dead. And these were after three nights when I woke up feeling great. So, um, you know, there's, uh, uh, there's a tendency in this, you know, data driven tech age to invest too much in the, uh, in the measurements and not enough in the object, or excuse me, the subjective matter of how I feel. And, and that's like, if I had one wish for every reader of Mark's Daily Apple for the last 15 years, it is, I want you to be intuitive about your life. I want you to be able to make choices without having to think, what would Mark say? What would Sean say? What would Zach do? You know, uh, you know uh, and then judge yourself for having maybe made the wrong choice. Fuck, I just, you know, just uh, become self-aware, take responsibility, educate yourself. And there's plenty of opportunities to educate yourself and then make choices. And if you make one that doesn't serve you in the short term, be okay with that too. You know, just move on. Just don't, don't beat yourself up uh, or don't, you know, don't, don't uh, wait till two days later when you're, heart rate variability says, yes, now it's time to work out, even though you don't feel that motivated that day. Uh, yeah, that stuff just drives me bonkers. And I'm, I'm sort of the, I'm the, the Luddite when it comes to wearables. And I think I always will be. And I'm more and more, you know, if, if we want to be more human, part of being human is being in tune with your body and being in touch with your emotions and being, uh, you know, being connected to people around you, not because, because you're looking them in the eye, not because you're, you're texting them, LOL, OMG, you know, uh, and all this other crap on digital devices. It's, I think we're headed down a very slippery slope with all this shit. Yeah. You know, it's interesting too. I think like a lot of times some of that stuff is the information is so like potentially disturbing that like in potentially inaccurate that it causes just as much stress and anxiety which is you know the opposite direction of where you really want to be heading so like you said i think getting in tune with your body is huge because then 
you're responding to the feedback loop that's actually, you know, speaking to you in a way you can understand and not just trying to read, read a number on a, on a screen. Um, I think that's also kind of the beauty more or less of Sean's carnivore approach. And, you know, I think hopefully the future of that approach, because I think what it does is it takes something that we've gotten quite muddied the waters of nutrition. And it's one of those things too, where it's really hard, if not impossible to really eliminate other potential variables that the easiest way for a lot of people kind of is starting at baseline and adding on from there. And, and certainly like a, an elimination diet is going to give you that blank slate to kind of build off of and find out, well, how exactly does my body respond to this? Um, I think it also would open up people's eyes to seeing their individuality too, where, you know, maybe my friend brings back this and does great with it. And I bring it back and do horrible with it. Well, that that's fine. That's just my reality or something I need to think about when I choose what to eat and how to kind of go about that. Yeah. Well, that's one of the dangers of social media is that you see, you know, you sort of measure your, your success by, by how far other people can pull their bathing suit up their ass. I, don't <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible how social media becomes this metric. Like my life sucks because everyone else, you know, looks so, so sparkly on social media. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really dangerous. Everybody's different. Everybody, you know, again, I go back to my, you know, what's my goal with Mark Staley Apple and all the things I've ever written. End of one, you know, experiment where you are taking notes and, and, you know, eliminating stuff and observing and seeing how you feel and adding stuff back in. And it does not get any more difficult than that. Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of HPO Podcast is brought to you by a company named Fat Snacks. That's Fat Snacks with an X. Fat Snacks is a company that makes a cookie that is keto, low carb, and high fat. They use ingredients like almond flour, coconut flour, and butter to make a soft bake cookie with one to two net grams of carbs and eight grams of fat per cookie. It comes in flavors such as chocolate chip, lemon, and peanut butter. This personally is a, an option that I've used in the past when I'm traveling, when I'm in a situation where I might be busy and on the go for quite some time and just there's a scarcity of what I would consider high quality food options. This is a great thing that's easy to pack and bring along and uh, get you out of a pinch in a situation like that. Uh, I also see this as a really great option for parents with children who want to send them to school, to practice or to a friend's house and don't want them to overdo some of the more traditional options that are sugar and vegetable oil-based cookies. Uh, if you'd like to check out this product, please head over to their website at fatsnacks.com, and with the promo code HPO, you can get 5% off your first single order or 10% off a subscription order. Also, if you get a chance, head over to Instagram and Facebook and give them a follow or a shout-out at Eat Fat Snacks. And let them know that HPO is very grateful for their support. Now, back to the show. Yeah, I think that that's, that's you know, I, I agree with you. Social media is got a lot of problems. It is, you know, there's just, you know, and, and you know, you see it. And, and I don't think it's going away, obviously. And it's just going to continue more and more. And you see the younger kids starting at two years of age or they've got an iPad and they're stuck. To, and I've got kids and they're already into that stuff. And you try to minimize that stuff but it's not going away but one of one of the nice things about social media which and, and you know if you'd asked me five years ago i was like i could care less 
what anybody does on social. I don't want to watch what somebody eats. I don't care about their cat. You know, none of that stuff interests me, you know, but as I've gotten to where, you know, you can use it as a tool to collect information and you can kind of, you know, the way we, we currently solve our problems, you know, the science, in the scientific community is, you know, brilliant scientist comes up with an idea. He runs it through the IRB committee. They take a couple of years to approve it. He gets a few people to participate. Maybe he can get it funded. Maybe five years down the road, he'll get some kind of results, which are very narrow in scope. And it, you know, and it may not be replicated. And so meanwhile, we don't- Meanwhile, Sean Baker's got a study with 200,000 people uh, logging in with their results. Right, and so you've got this, well, I mean, you've got this distributed data collection system that is so much more powerful. And I think if yeah. we, if we're, you know, if we really want to push this and say, hey, look, I can get a million people, you know, uh, you know potentially on something. Yeah. We, can, we, can, we can outsource it to crowds and they can say, this either works or it doesn't. And I think the cream will rise to the top. And I yeah. think that's, that's, yeah. that's the way, you know, we can look at it. And, and you know, some of the, the hardcore scientists will, will, will make fun of that and they'll, you know, poo-poo that and say stuff like that. But I think there's some true power in this stuff. And I think this is, you know, I think people aren't starting to get that. And I think it's kind of cool. Oh, I agree. No, it's, a, it's, a, it's an awesome tool in the, it's like, it's like a chainsaw, right? It's an awesome tool when you use it for the right things. But, you know, when you're making a, a slash film, it's, you know, it's, it's a different, it's a different uh, concept. So uh, I'm just, my concern is that so many people kind of measure their lives by what their friends are doing and how awesome their friends' lives look on social media. Uh, and, and that there's, a, again, another danger to that, that you, you lose track of who you are and what your goals are and what's going to work for you. And, and, it, you know, it, it, again, it comes back to that development of an intuitive sense of, of living a life that is, you know, well-directed with purpose uh, and lots of enjoyment and lots of experiences. Yeah. sounds like lots of ultimate Frisbee in your case. It sounds like the, uh, <laughs> you know, it sounds like a blast. I know there's a guy named Ted Naiman. I don't know if you know Ted. He's another physician out there that, that, that's big into that stuff. It looks like fun. I'll have to get out there and try it sometime. Mark, let me ask you, this is, so when, when, when you got, when your company was a Primal Kitchen was just acquired by Kraft Foods, yep. right? Yeah. Um, and obviously that's, that's great. I, I was very happy to hear that for, I thought that was just a wonderful success story. There are people that have been critical of that because they'll say that, well, this is this big food company that's going to take over a, a, an otherwise good, healthy company and just put their crappy products in there. And they're going to, they're going to try and, uh, you know, just, just make it profitable and do that. What, what do you say about that? The people that criticize that or, and what are, is there anything you can do to sort of maintain the integrity of your product while, while being acquired? Well, if there's, the first question, is there anything I can do to maintain the integrity? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I have built in uh, huge quality control guidelines uh, in perpetuity for the line. Um, I'm also going to be uh, approving, you know, basically every new product for the next uh, two years, uh, at least, because that's, I have a two-year ongoing consulting contract. Um, you know, my name and likeness are going to be on the label forever. So this is my legacy, right? This is not something that I just said, oh, I'll, I'll take the money and run. I want this to be uh, one of the largest food brands, if not the largest food brand in this space in the world. And I was not going to be able to do that on my own, working out of my little you know, uh, office in my home with my employees up in Oxnard uh, in California uh, and the rest of them spread out 
across the country and my limited budget. There's a point at which you, you hit an inflection point in the food business when you need the resources. You need, uh, you need you know, distribution more than we have. You need to um, get rid of some of the, some of the middlemen that are, that are uh, necessary if you're a small company, but, but aren't necessary if you're a larger company, have larger resources. Um, marketing, advertising budgets that we just couldn't afford. All these things now become uh, available to us. So Kraft Heinz bought us not be. this is the thing that, that I, I think is difficult to, 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 um, to explain, and yet it ought to make sense. They didn't buy us because we're this huge brand that everybody knows about, and so now we're going to acquire it, and we're going to screw it up. They bought us because we're a, a unique brand that has been taking market share from every one of Big Foods products for the last three years, four years. Uh, they see that consumers are voting with their dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, they want better for you products. I mean, in February of 2015, I, my, my company and I launched a product, a, a 12 ounces of mayonnaise that was $10. Are you kidding me? Like, who is going to pay $10 for 12 ounces of mayonnaise? And it turned out millions of people would because they've been waiting for this product their whole mm -hmm. lives. You know, they've been waiting for better for you condiments and dressings and things that you could put on meat uh, and that you could put on salad and you could put on things that, that are going to enhance the experience and not worry about all of the nasty industrial seed oils that you're putting on it. So it would be so stupid for a company to buy this beautiful, nascent, growing, emerging brand that's setting the trend, that's leading in every category that it's in, and then screw it up with you know, with artificial whatever and, and nasty industrial seed oils. Quite the opposite is true. They see, they saw, as did other companies that, that were bidding on us, saw where this is headed. And they go, geez, if we don't figure something out soon, we're going to lose market share to these, to these people. And all of our legacy brands are going to suffer uh, as a result of that. So my goal is not only to grow Primal Kitchen, as it is, as the preeminent number one, objectively better for you uh, condiment or dressing in the in the in the space. But maybe over time, I can convince them to shift some of their other in some of their other product categories. Get rid of some of the ingredients that they're choosing to use now that I have an issue with. Right. So I see this as being. Look, when I when I started March Daily Apple um, in two thousand six. Uh, 12 years ago, over 12 years ago, you know, I wanted to affect the lives of, of a million people. And then shortly thereafter, I wrote the book, The Primal Blueprint. I said, well, I'm, I'm going to affect the lives of 10 million people. And then as we got closer to that goal, I said, I want to affect the lives of 100 million people. Well, in order to do that, you, you, can't, just, you can't just be disseminating information. There's not, there's not 100 million people that are going to get your information. The way you do it is to create products that appeal to people who, who want something better and who haven't found that yet. And so that was the leverage that I would use to achieve my goal of affecting positively the lives of 100 million people in the way they ate. Uh, and, and again, at, at some point, I wasn't going to be able to continue to do this uh, for the rest of my life on the budget, on, on my budget that I had working out of, you know, my little shop here in, in Miami and in, in an Oxnard. So this was 
the perfect opportunity to combine the forces of the distribution that Kraft Heinz has and the technology uh, and the, the product innovation and all of the insights that my team has on the way uh, the market is headed uh, in, in a way that I think it's just going to, I mean, I feel very, very strongly that we are going to change the way the world eats. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm glad you actually brought that up too, because I think it, it, it can be easy to take a, a pessimistic view of that. But um, it, it, when you just really think about it for a second, I mean, how ridiculous would it be for Kraft Heinz to purchase purchase your product and then just start throwing the ingredients that they already have in other products into it. It's like they would, they'd be just as well served continuing to produce the stuff they had been producing at that point. I mean, it's clear that they're trying to target another area of the market that they're not, that they're not hitting with their stuff. Um, and you know, when you're in a position like that with a company that big, it's like their options are essentially either to, you know, develop their own version of what you're making or, you know, buy it. And it's, 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 I think, a, actually a positive sign that a company of that size is recognizing that there's that much of a demand for something like that, that they're willing to invest their money in, in the purchase of it, as well as however much they plan on spending marketing it going forward to that, that they see value in that. And they see that, the, that their economy of scale is going to be able to kind of put that into the hands of even more people and, and you know, hopefully, like you said, grow, grow it to another scale that you couldn't otherwise uh, you know, given, given a kind of a small business startup. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've been in the food business now, all of not even four years yet. And I go to the trade shows and I see all the, all the startup companies and they're, you know, all the companies now are starting in the better for you space. They all recognize that people want products that are, that are demonstrably better than what has been historically offered by big food. All these companies are going to get acquired by big food and all these companies and a lot of them have already been acquired. And the ones that have been acquired have not suffered. They haven't, you know, there's been no dilution of uh, the brand. They haven't, you know, shifted over to crappy ingredients. They just recognize that this is where the buyer is headed. I, I coined a phrase a bunch of years ago, uh, a bunch of months ago, it's called Mark's law. And Mark's law says that every 18 months, the number of people who are willing to buy product that says that's, that's marketed as healthy uh, doubles. So as this, um, buying public gets wise to what's on labels and what's available. Uh, more and more, they're, they're going to be more and more companies who are going to, you know, try to get into the space. And, and I think we, you know, we've led the way. Again, if you look at the ingredients that we use and you look at the flavor profiles, you know, we are demonstrably a better product than what has been typically offered. Uh, and, you know, there's no reason that we aren't going to continue doing that for a long period of time. I mean, that's, I've got so many ideas, product innovation ideas, you know, you got to kind of restrain me because I'm I, all these things I want to watch in the next, hmm. the next six or eight months, but that's the fun of what we do. That's the R and D part that uh, I have so much fun doing. Mark, what do you think, uh, at least in the Western world, what do you think the diet's going to look like for the average person, uh, 30, 50 years from now? Um, you know, it's, it could go, it could go two ways. One is it could go the way of, uh, you know, beyond meat and, uh, at, and Soylent, you know, and all this, all this other stuff, uh, this plant-based movement, um, or people could get wise and realize that the only way to generate topsoil is through feeding hooved animals, uh, their native diet, and then letting them poop on the ground and driving it in and, 
and creating topsoil and then growing green leafy and, and, you know, fruits and vegetables and not, uh, uh, you know, seed grasses like, uh, you know, oats, barley, wheat, rye, soy, and all the things that, that are sort of, um, not just, not just, uh, antithetical to health, but are sort of ruining the topsoil in the process. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've, uh, spent much time reading Alan Savory's, you know, work, I'm sure you probably have. And there are a number of people that, that, are quite convinced that the that the appropriate management of hooved animals, uh, f- not just to create topsoil, but to serve as uh, as you know sources of nutrition, is the only way to feed a growing planet. Otherwise, we are really in in dire straits, and otherwise, we're really headed down that you know Franken food uh, soylent path, which has zero appeal to me. I think the funny thing about soylent is um, this assumption that the founders had that people don't like to eat. And so they would rather just take 30 seconds and slam down, slam down some, you know, some um, meal replacement product that, that claimed to have all of the essential macros and then get back to programming or get back to coding um, because it was better than the pizza and Coke that they'd been living on historically. But people like to eat and you know, again, we go back, we go back to the, to the carnivore diet, you know, half the fun is grilling up a steak or, you know, the smell of that ribeye or those lamb chops or, you know, that pork chop or making that, you know, buttery omelet or whatever it is. I mean, um, I, I, that, that's one of the things, one of the, one of the essential elements of being human and enjoying life is, is, is those taste profiles of food. I love to eat. You know, I wrote this book, the keto reset diet a couple of years ago. And, and, um, and I spend a, a fair amount of time keto. I'm in a keto zone. So some days I'm keto, you know, some days I have 30 grams of carbs. Some days I have 180 grams of carbs, but because I've refined my metabolism, I have metabolic flexibility. And I know you do Zach. I've, you know, I know that comes with the territory of what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't feel any different from one day to the next. I don't, you know, I don't feel like, Oh my God, I had 180 grams of carbs today. I got kicked out of ketosis and now I'm going to feel like shit for three days. No, I feel fine all those days, you know? So I like, I like eating food. I like to eat. Uh, you know, don't, don't misinterpret the fact that I eat good food or they eat food that that's contemplated to refine my metabolism as some sort of supreme sacrifice. Jesus, I, you know, when I'm sitting there with a two pound ribeye steak and a glass of Cabernet and a bowl of sauteed mushrooms, do I feel sorry for myself that I didn't eat the dinner rolls? No. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's kind of funny because these products, these Beyond Meat products are marketed as extremely healthy. I mean, they are, you know, when you talk about people being told, you know, you're going to eat something healthy and, we, and you look at the product ingredients and, you know, it's, it's some sort of processed grain with some seed oil, you know, and, 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 and a bunch of other chemicals in there. And it's just like, and beet juice to look like blood. Right, right. Give me a break. And so, but there is such a huge push. Uh, you know, we see it. I see it. All. I'm very acutely aware of. It. I see this push for us to eat this stuff. You know, I know. I know. Like uh, Impossible Foods. Uh, you know, they're paying restaurants to to serve their food. I mean, they're they're really pushing this hard. And so, for for people that you know you and i are you know we're in a different space but the average consumer who doesn't know which way to go do i eat the beyond meat stuff 
or God forbid, do I eat a regular hamburger? I mean, how do we, how do we, how do we reconcile as a, as a sort of consumer? What, what's the best thing? My, my answer to that is just try the damn stuff yourself and see what works best for you over the long term. But what do you think about that? Well, first of all, I would say that the, that the argument for a plant-based diet sure sounds good. You know, um, those poor animals and how they're treated. And by the way, you know, uh, CAFO animals are treated horrendously and I have a big issue with that, but, um, you know, and, and, you know, you have to sort of assume that just eating plants is better for the planet. And so it's a, it's a very, um, unicorn, you know, type story that, that, that plant-based people tell, and it's pretty compelling, you know? And so to argue the converse of that and say, no, it's actually healthier to eat a meat-based diet. And, um, you know, and that, and that um, the way we feed the world is by, is by growing more steer and more, uh, you know, more cattle, more uh, pigs, uh, more grazing animals and, and things like that. It's, I can see how that's a tough sell. And yet it's, it's, it's a more scientifically valid argument, but people don't like, people don't always like to, to, under, to, to, to hear the science part, partly because they don't understand it. And partly because, again, the sort of, you know, the, 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 the wonderful unicorn-based story on the other side of the uh, equation, the, the, the plant-based argument seems so much more compelling. So we have, you know, we have our work cut out for you. Now, I just use the word plant-based, um, and I will, be, I will be clear, I still, I still have a plant-based diet. I eat, I eat a lot of meat. I eat meat every day, twice a day. But I still have a salad. I still have broccoli or cauliflower or something for, uh, for dinner. I mean, I, I still am in favor of a plant-based diet for a lot of people. Uh, again, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm okay with a carnivore diet, but I'm in favor of if, if, if variety is your thing, then a plant-based diet is fine. And I, and I, and I know people who are pretty much vegetarian who do very well on a plant-based diet. So, uh, but we're not talking about that. That's, we're talking about preferences there, but when you and I start talking about what does the world look like in 40 or 50 years, that's a serious, a serious discussion. You know, when, uh, I mean, Bill Gates and, and his, and the Gates Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates have been sending, you know, millions, billions of tons of grain around the world to feed, to feed uh, hungry people around the planet, you know, in the, in the short term, God bless them. That's a great humanitarian effort. Um, in the long run, what is it, you know, what does it achieve other than uh, preventing d- death from starvation, which by the way, there's a lot to be said for that, but is it, you know, is, is it enhancing health? Is it something that's, that's, um, you know, in the long run going to solve what is a huge problem? How do you feed a planet? Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's really interesting when you get down into like the real technical details of all of that. And it's like your description there, you know, let's, let's help these folks who are starving. That's, you know, that's a stepping stone. Hopefully, you know, we're, we're trying to kind of meet some basic needs to get to a, hopefully a part where, where they can focus on other areas of life and not just where the next meal is going to come from. And if that helps with that, great. Um, but yeah, ultimately I think there needs to be a long game in play as well. And it seems to me that like when you get into some of the real more ideological parts of kind of the plant-based or vegan side of things, it's, it's, it's not like, here's an option that you can consider. It's, this is the only option. And if you don't do it, you know, like, you know, death to you. And it's almost 
what I see as taking humans and creating kind of a God complex around them saying like, we are separate from the rest of this world. We need to stand and be the like purveyors of what is done. And, you know, I think we have a responsibility as the most sentient beings, but um, we also have to understand where we fit and how we fit within the system, as opposed to removing ourselves from the system altogether and hoping that it just figures itself out um, underneath us. And like we were saying before, like it's, it's, you don't have to look too far into the science to see that cycle of hooved animals, you know, upcycling nutrition and, you know, when it's set up the right way. So a lot of times I think we identify or we look at the very worst of something. So like the capo set, you know, example and say, this is the reality. We need to get rid of all of it. No more meat for anybody. It's like you identified a problem and just in, instead of solving the the problem or working to like improve that area, you just decided to wipe it off the table altogether. And, you know, that's just another, like we were talking about earlier in the podcast, an example of an overcorrection. It's, it's not trying to actually address the, the root of the problem. It's right. correcting to a degree that, you know, likely isn't going to be good for the long term. No, agreed. Agreed. Yeah, we've had, uh, you know, a lot of experiments over the years, you know, as far as with what we've done in the diet, there's been a lot of unintended consequences. Um, you know, I think the thing with the seed oils, which is always very interesting to me, because, you know, there's a lot of people that, that will tell us that those things are very good, because, you know, they'll lower our LDL cholesterol. You know, there's studies that show that that replacing, you know, saturated fat, polyunsaturated fat will lower the LDL cholesterol, therefore, less heart disease and therefore it's healthier for you. And, 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 and that seems to have been, to me, this sort of, you know, I, I, I think that cholesterol, you know, obviously has a role in atherosclerosis. Is it the primary only thing we need to worry about? Are there other things that are, that, that are impactful on this? I tend to answer that is yes, but I mean, I think that has been one of the more damaging uh, sort of paradigms that hopefully we're starting to, to, to get away from that because you know, it's when we hear it's all about LDL cholesterol, it's the only thing we need to worry about. And the only thing we care about is heart disease. Goodness, there's a lot of quality of life that goes out the window when you when you just worry about that. Do you, what are your thoughts on this whole cholesterol is bad for you, Mark? Is that is that something that you worry about? Or what, what is your cholesterol just for the heck of it? Uh, my cholesterol is 245. HDL is 87. Um, triglycerides are 45. Um, A1C is, you know, 4.6, something like that. I mean, um, I, I'm not worried about my cholesterol. Um, the big, the big deal is if you just get a calcium scan, you know, you'll see if cholesterol's having an impact pretty much, uh, you know, in that regard, otherwise we're just, all we're talking about is risk factors. That's all we're talking about. So there's no guarantee that, that high cholesterol is going to be detrimental to your health. It just increases your risk. And, and, and by the way, not by much, um, you know, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I used to cite them. The fact that, you know, half the people who present at a hospital with a heart attack have a, have a total cholesterol of under 200. Um, there was studies done years ago that looked at people at a, uh, cholesterol over 200 versus total cholesterol of under 120. And, and if, you, if you accounted for heart events, all-cause all mortality was lower in the low cholesterol group. Uh, you know, we're talking about life, you know, in, in the enjoyment of life, lifespan, quality of life, and all these things come into play here. And, um, you know, one of the reasons that my cholesterol is high is because I eat a lot of fat, and I need a lot of bile to, to emulsify the fat. And that's, 
That's what my body's responding to. So I could lower my cholesterol very quickly by getting rid of, of fat. I could take on a John McDougall diet, you know, or, or a Caldwell Esselstyn diet, you know, uh, and I could, I could drop my cholesterol to, you know, probably 175. Um, guaranteed my HDL would come down to 48 and I'd have a different set of, I'd have a I'd have different blood work. Now, if I was really worried about cholesterol and that's all I knew, then maybe I'd do that. You know, that's, but I'm not, I'm not, this isn't a game to see who's got the lowest cholesterol. This is a game to see who doesn't get a heart attack. You know, so if I don't get a heart attack with, with a higher cholesterol, because I'm choosing other forms of, uh, of, of eating. Um, and by the way, a lot of times I'll go to a doctor and I'll say, look, so my cholesterol is 245. So would you rather my cholesterol was 195 and my HDL was 40? You know, because I could do that. We could do that. And then I'd be under 200 and you'd be happy, but my HDL would be, you know, ridiculously low. Um, so there's, there are a lot of variables that we have to look at. It's a variable equation. And every time you change, you know, one, one input, you have to kind of look at further on down the equation, how these things, um, how these things take place. Um, I think that the fact that I have a, a, a very, uh, what we call a low in, an anti-inflammatory diet, a low inflammation diet. Look, if inflammation and oxidation are the proximate cause of heart disease, and if cholesterol plays a role in the, uh, in the mediation of inflammation and oxidation, then if I can keep my, my inflammation and oxidation down, then cholesterol is a, is a non-factor there. Um, look, cholesterol is one of the most important molecules in the human body. We make 1,300 milligrams a day, regardless of how much we take in on our diet. I mean, it's a, we, without it, we would die. Uh, you know, it's the, it's the basis for most of the, for sex hormones and vitamin D and it's on the cell membranes. I mean, it's a, it's a crazy useful molecule and to demean it, uh, is just to, to me, it's just, uh, it's folly. It's scientific folly. So, um, that's, that's my take on cholesterol, Sean. <laughs> Yeah, I echo those thoughts, Mark. You know, you know, some people would say, you know, I mean, you know, you look at you as a guy in his in his you know early sixties, uh, you Late know, walking now be sixty six. Okay, well, goodness, even better for you, but you know, walking around with still with a very lean physique, a six pack, you know, active, running around. Uh, many people with common sense would say, hey, that guy's doing pretty good. But then some people say, well, look, his cholesterol is 245. Oh, my gosh, he's horribly sick. And just because he looks good doesn't mean he's healthy. And I think we have this, uh, yes, there are exceptions. Yes, there are smokers that live to 100 years old. But, and yes, there are in-shape guys that drop dead. But I mean, gosh, when we throw the common sense out of there and say, look, this guy is not some morbid obese guy that can't, can't walk down the street, you know, just because that guy's LDL might be 100 and, you know, 105 below 100 doesn't mean he's healthy and I think there's this we've gotten so again tied up to this this data you know you know like I said I've never checked my ketones I've never checked my heart rate variability I don't really care I care about what I can do and how yeah. happy I am doing yeah. that stuff and I think it's just this this you know this theme just kind of recurs yeah I mean Rob Rob Wolf just you know his his thing going back 15 years how do you look feel and perform you know and that's really what it comes down to yeah, I like, you know, I think those are some good takeaway points. How do you look, feel, and perform, and people like to eat? I mean, I think those are <laughs> two, two very important things that I think most of us would agree with. And I think sometimes, 
at the end of the day, sometimes common sense just kind of, kind of, uh, kind of wins out with some of this stuff. And we have to trust, you know, we have to be able to look in the mirror and say, am I healthy or not? You know, and, and I think humans should be able to do that. We've been able to do that. You know, you think about it, our grandparents' generation who arguably were just as healthy as us with regard to chronic disease didn't have 500, you know, thousand different types of tests. They didn't have, you know, 75,000 different blood tests and all these different, you know, apps to track things and, and they, they did okay. And so the, the, the increase in technology and the testing, the diagnostics up in large part hasn't made much difference with regard to chronic disease in my, in my you know, summation of the evidence so far. No, I mean, you could make an argument that a lot of times it has, it just, it has created more problems than, you know, if you look at mammograms and, and PSA tests and things like that. And, you know, it, it actually, um, it actually creates more problems sometimes than it actually, than it truly solves. Um, but you're right. I mean, people didn't have heart attacks until the 1950s. Like when Eisenhower had a heart attack, that was, that was a huge deal because it, like it was such a rare occurrence, right? All of a sudden, you know, there's a million of them a year now. Yeah. Mark, let me ask you now. I mean, you, you know, you, 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 you've got your, your product bought by the company. Now you, what, what's next for you? I mean, what are you going to do? Are you just going to kick back and paddleboard around Miami and hang out and just not care or what, what's up for you? What are you going to do? Are well, you going to change people's uh, lives or what? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm always, I've always got something going on. So I have a, I have a book on uh, combining keto and longevity coming out next year. Um, so it's really focused on kind of how my wife and I live our lives. My wife is 63. I'm 65. I'll be 66 in, in July. And, you know, we, we live active lives and we have, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we, we're very, um, you know, we're very vibrant and vital and we do a lot of, a lot of things that I think people our age, shit, when I was growing up, 65 was basically dead. So, uh, you know, a lot of things have changed since then. So I want to kind of put it out there of how, you know, how we, how we live our lives and, and the choices that we've made uh, and information that we can give other people to to sort of, uh, you know, tap into that kind of why we call it technology. Um, I've got, you know, I have a two-year consulting agreement, as I said, with, uh, with Kraft Heinz, looking forward to doing more R&D with them. Um, I'll be, you know, Mark's Daily Apple, keep going. Um, I, I, you know, I love writing and I, and I love kind of putting my thoughts out there in the, um, in the blogosphere. Um, I'll probably do some more, uh, a lot more um, shirtless shots on Instagram. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, we'll see. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, what's funny is the thing about doing a, a dissection of my body, uh, not literally, but uh, you know, all of the injuries I've had over the years and all the maladies I've had and all the stuff that, that um, has kind of shut me down for short periods of time, but I've, I've found the workarounds, whether it's torn hamstrings, torn lats, uh, you know, torn uh, patellar tendon, uh, tendonitis, arthritis, all that, all, all the muscle imbalances. I thought I might have some fun with that just sort of, looking into, um, you know, all the stuff that, that has gone wrong and how I've dealt with it. I don't know. I've got a lot of, I got too many ideas to try and corral right now. I'm not going to recede into the background if that's, if that's what you're asking. I, no, I didn't expect you would, but <laughs> that, that's just another interesting topic you brought up. And, I, and as someone with an orthopedic, you know, surgery background, uh, I find that I'm discovering that diet has an, a tremendous impact on our tissue integrity and, I, you know, when you talk about these injuries and susceptibilities of injury, would you agree that diet can, can be, a, be a factor in that? A hundred percent. 
across the board, whether it's, you know, the inflammations that I had as a runner uh, because I was taking in, you know, 700 to 1,000 grams of carbs a day, a lot of it in the form of sugary crap, a lot of it in the form of grains. Uh, so I had osteoarthritis, I had debilitating osteoarthritis, basically cut short my running career. That's how I became a triathlete. I couldn't run at an elite level anymore. And I started riding a bike because uh, I didn't, I didn't, it didn't involve the pounding. Um, then I realized, um, you know, the importance of, say, collagen supplementation and how, check this out, you know, for the first two and a half million years of human evolution, we ate collagen all the time. We even ate it up, you know, as we were developed into uh, the early, you know, the 1700s, 1800s, we're eating broth, bone broth, cooking all parts of the animal, nose to tail. Uh, and then into the 50s and 60s, grandma's chicken soup. And then in the 60s and 70s, we're even having, like, I'm, I'm sure your mothers, had, you know, ate Knox gelatin for their nails and for their skin. Uh, and we as kids ate Jell-O, which is a form of gelatin. But because Jell-O had sort of fallen out of favor, the last 10 or 15 years, we've had no source of collagen in our diet. You know, we, 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 we eschewed all other parts of the animal except the choice cuts of meat. So we, we weren't eating gristle. We weren't eating, we weren't making the, the broth. That's the reason bone broth has become so big in the last couple of years too. It's a source of, it's a source of collagen. It's a source of these uh, collagenous uh, peptides that the body requires to repair uh, not just skin, hair, and nails, but connective tissue, fascia, ligaments, tendons. This is all largely um, uh, collagenous material. And you need these peptides that in many cases are, they're not available in our, in our traditional uh, recent diets. So yeah, so that's an example of a raw material that we ought to be getting that we have not been getting that then manifests itself in you know, we're doing all this stuff to build strong muscles and then the muscles are pulling on the tendons and ligaments and causing issues there. So 100%, I think diet, that, that's one thing I would go back, uh, you know, and adjust significantly if I were to go back to being forced to being a marathoner, for instance, again, I'd, I'd change my diet hugely in that regard. Yeah, it's interesting when you look at, you know, because doing some research on some of this stuff is, you know, we have actual, uh, you know, we used to think that, uh, you know, our proteins are broken down into specific amino acids and they absorb just as amino acids. And we've discovered diantripeptide transporters. And we have some specific transporters will absorb things like hydroxylysine, hydroxyproline, which are, you know, the building blocks of, col of, of, of collagen now. And so it's interesting to see that, you know, we're set up to, to absorb that stuff. And, and, you know, it's not that we, and so that eating it is very important. And I think yeah. that's, yeah. Uh, you know, when I tell people, you know, you always hear people, you know, you, you are what you eat. Well, I say, well, eat what you are. Mm -hmm. oh, and yeah. you're, made out of, you're made out of flesh and bone. Well, and a lot of people think, oh, that's just too simplistic that you eat collagen to build collagen. But, you know, that's a, that's a good example of, you know, eat what you are. Yeah, exactly. Well, Mark, we appreciate your time. Uh, thank you for coming. I know you're a busy fella and uh, wish you all the success and look forward to seeing what, what, what next comes out of the uh, next chapter of your life. Oh, I'm sure uh, we'll be in touch. I appreciate sure, spending sure. time with you guys. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for coming on. We'll be sure to share ways to reach you to our listeners. And uh, when we get this one up, we'll tag you in some of the posts and stuff too, so that uh, you know we're, that it's out and ready to go. Cool. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. 
If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.